Welcome to Inside Yorkshire with Susan, bringing you intriguing details about the lives of people here in Yorkshire. So, come on in and join us. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now, today's episode is the first of a two-part one with Dudley Edwards. Dudley is a Yorkshire artist who came to prominence in the 60s. He co-founded a groundbreaking pop collective, painting wild-coloured furniture, shop fronts and customised cars during the swinging 60s era. This led to commissions from famous names you're going to recognise, including one which uh, involved decorating the piano upon which songs from Sgt Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band were written. So, listen in to his fascinating journey from Yorkshire to London. Hello, Susan here, Inside Yorkshire. Now today, I'm talking to Dudley Edwards, who is an artist who began his um, well professional art career, I would imagine, I, I can say, in the swinging 60s, Dudley, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And now you're based in the Yorkshire Dales, and I've been very fortunate to have had you referred to me because I had no idea how um, prolific your art was and how much you've done and continue to do so. So really, just wanting to talk to you about some of your background, and I'm sure the listeners will be fascinated by your back history. (laughs) Well, I was was brought up in West Yorkshire, on a a small old inn outside Halifax, and... uh, in terms of people often ask when did I first get interested in art, and like my father used to say, I could ever since I could hold a pencil, that's all I ever wanted to do. And uh, uh, the time in, in I'm largely autodidactic because the school I went to was notorious for it, it all the headlines uh, of the tabloids, front page of the tabloids being the worst school in Britain. Oh, the that worst? The worst. That was the riding school in Halifax. Right. Which was closed, eventually closed down. Um, but uh, luckily, I had an art teacher there who took an interest in me, and uh, he persuaded my father um, that I should go to the art school at Halifax. And uh, my father was reluctant to begin with because he was saying, well, most of your friends have all gone into the mill or down the mines or whatever and then bringing, bringing home a wage. I thought when you were... Proper 15, jobs. <laughs> yeah. I thought yeah. when you were 15, I'd be getting a wage from you. Mm. Um, however, he, he gave in and uh, I went to the Halifax School of Art for two years. And then when I finished there, the principal there asked to see my father again and said he ought to go on to the Bradford College of Art for another further three years. My father was sort of, again, a bit reluctant, but went along with it. And uh, when I finished at Bradford, I went straight down to London. So my father, my father never did get uh, a, wage, a wage from me. What age were you then when you went down to London? I'd be uh, 20. 20, yeah. right. Still quite young then, really. really yeah. But I knew, we, it get, we, you, as you were at the art college, you, you gathered that you had to get down to London to, to have any chance of making it. That's and, where uh, it was at then. Yeah. Yes. And that's before the swinging 60s was really... Mm got going then but uh, we knew that you had to go down there and uh, I went down and stayed with the, a friend who I'd heard about who'd been at the college before me so he'd already got ensconced there he was at the Royal College of Art that's Douglas Binder who's now the curator well he's not the curator he's now the artist in residence at Dean Clough in Halifax the Dean mm-hmm. Clough Museum and Art Gallery and um, so I met up with Doug shared a flat with Doug for, that was for the first few months and then a guy turned up from uh, an, another student from Bradford 
and uh, he suggested that we all move out of the, this particular place and move in together in a in somewhere larger to accommodate the three of us plus his wife. He was married, so we did this, and uh, we we moved into a a large. Uh, we had a large studio, but we didn't have any money for the furniture or anything else, hardly anything. And we managed to scrape together. We got a couple of uh, cane, wooden cane chairs and a chest of drawers. And uh, we thought everything was being a bit drab. We thought, well, well we're artists. We'll paint these things. And uh, we painted the chest of drawers and the chairs. And having done the, painted them, we thought we looked at them and thought, these are, I bet people would love these. They'd probably sell. And uh, we didn't know how to go about this. Uh, but where we were living at the time, uh, David Bailey, the photographer, had his studio directly opposite where, where ours was. And we used to look out the, the window of our studio with our tongs hanging out because he'd be, he'd be driving up the road in an open-back Mercedes full of these beautiful uh, models. So we were really envious <laughs> watching this going on every day. Uh, but then uh, being naive, we thought, well, we didn't know how to make a start. And we thought, well... Uh, I mean, I came up with the idea. I said, well, if we leave the chest of drawers on his doorstep in the middle of the night, when he wakes up in the morning, it'll be the first thing he sees and he'll probably want it. And it was still there, was it, the next morning? Well, it, it's, it, this is exactly what happened. He opened the door, saw it, and uh, I think he had an inkling of where it, where it come. He'd seen us doing our thing and what have you. And uh, he was obviously going out that day, but his, his cleaner came across with a message to say... Uh, if you go over across the road, um, there'll be a check waiting for you. So uh, we then we're all nervous about who should go. So we we drew straws. I got the short straw, and I went across the road. And uh, Catherine Deneuve opened the door. Oh my then wife. <laughs> and uh, I'd seen her in so many French films. I thought, uh, oh, I can see where this is going to be going to end up. I'm going to be. It's going to be a menage a trois with David Bailey, and Catherine Deneuve, and myself. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, she said, "Wait there." She came back, gave me the check, and slammed the door. And I felt like, <laughs> you know, you know, life doesn't, you know, imitate. We can all dream, yeah, can't we? Yeah. Um, so from there. Uh, I think we got some publicity from that. And then uh, a buyer came from, uh, there was a store in Knightsbridge called Woolens, which was the most progressive store in London. It's a pity it closed down. Uh, but they used to put on a, every year, they used to put on a show of all the furniture from the Royal College of Art, their degree students. So that's the kind of uh, mm. ambitious way of doing things. And uh, they took, uh, they ordered so many chests of drawers for us to paint. And we started painting those, and then uh, uh, they started selling from there, and word got around, and uh, um, Lord Snowden came to photograph the, uh, the, uh, the painted furniture for the Sunday Times colour supplement. And, uh, yeah, we, it, it took those shots, and then it, it, it all seemed to snowball very quickly. I mean, we, when I think about it, we, we, were, only, uh, we were only there in the in studio for a couple of years, and we did so much. We started off with the furniture, and uh, that was being exported to uh, Ogilvy's in, uh, in Canada, uh, Bon Marche in Brussels, Macy's in America, as well as uh, Woolens in Knightsbridge. So it, it suddenly really took off. And uh, we felt that and we were the first people to do painted furniture since the Amiga workshops at the turn of the century with the Bloomsbury group. Mm. And uh, but it wasn't enough for us. We wanted to paint everything, uh, you know. <laughs> so uh, we thought, well, what next? So then we 
there was a, a design studio in Camden Town, which we were in Chalk Farm, Camden Town, which is mm. down the road. And there was a design studio for a company called Wool Fallings, who uh, were only a small group then, and they asked us to paint the facade of their of their uh, studio in Camden Town, which we did. And, uh, I mean, eventually, cut a long story short, but Wool Fallings is now probably one of the biggest advertising agencies in, in the world, you know. Right. They did all the livery for British Airways, uh, ICI, and mm-hmm. so many companies. But they just started from that time. And just so it's being in the right place at the right time, yeah. really. And um, then we started doing shop fronts following that in the King's Road and in Carnaby Street. And uh, and then we thought, well, what else? Because we, we'd have painted everything if we could, you know. Anything that like, didn't move. Anything that didn't move. <laughs> we'd have painted the pavement, anything. Because we just felt what it was. I mean, when I was at the art college in Bradford, um, we saw the first immigrants arrive from Asia, the, the Pakistanis and the Indians. And uh, they paint, they painted all the doors in bright, really bright mm. colours. And we thought that was wonderful because we love, co- being artists, we love colour. But we felt we lived in a very grey, drab world. You know, I mean, mm. the north of England, the factory smoke and chimneys, everything else. And uh, here, here they were, these brightly coloured doors in these black stone streets and everything. It, they just shone like diamonds in a coal mm. mine. They were just beautiful. And uh, I think that, and you can imagine people coming, the Asians coming from Pakistan, where, it, I mean, I've since been out to India. And, and it is places. very colourful out there. Yeah, yeah, there's so much colour. Mm. And they must have thought when they first arrived, oh dear, what have we come to? So that's probably the motivation for them to want to paint the doors. So uh, that that was one of the main influences. And uh, we also thought, when we come to painting things, uh, we thought, well, what kind of imagery should we use? And for me, it was like colour was kind of associated with joy and pleasure, but it also it came from, as I say, it was a black and white world. It felt like when I was growing up, because yes, there were there was you could see colour at the cinema, but even then, it wasn't that much technical. If you went to the Saturday, Saturday matinees as a child, most of the films were black and white, mm-hmm. and uh, even when television came in, it was black. It was and only white. black and white, yeah. yes. And uh, everybody was still wearing demob suits from having been in the forces or whatever. Everything was brown or black and white. And uh, suddenly uh, rock and roll came on the scene and we thought, wow, what's this? You know, I think in, in, to put it into context, people now, I mean, youngsters now, they, 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 as soon as they're born, they're flooded with music. They've got everything, haven't they? From hip hop to drum and bass to uh, punk, uh, rock and roll, everything. Whereas when when we when we came on the scene and it's a child from the forties, uh, there was nothing. I mean, it, it was just uh, the railway train run. The songs like the railway train runs through the middle of the house. She wore a yellow pink blue <laughs> polka dot bikini. And yes, it's terrible music. And uh, suddenly along came comes Billy Ailey and Elvis Presley and all the others, and we thought it's magic. You know what is this? But the place we. Uh, we could get to hear this music on, on a good, loud decibel level, was the fairgrounds, which mm. only came to town one, once or twice a year. But we really looked forward to that, because there was no big stadiums in those days, and uh, you, you couldn't get to it, or you could hear it on, just on your lo- little record player. Mm. So to hear these like huge speakers in the fairgrounds, and it was all colourful as well, because 
they're all the teddy boys uh, wearing the brightly coloured suits, mopping with the girls or wearing brightly coloured clothes. And this, as I say, this is only once or twice a year. So it was the imagery that you got on the fairgrounds that we thought that, be, that we associated that with pleasure and joy. And we thought we want, want to pr- proliferate that. But it did not just kind of copy it. We wanted to do our own version of it. Mm. And having been to art college, we had a more, should I say, sophisticated uh, view of of uh, colour combinations and things than, than, say, the people who did the fairground art mm. would have. Yeah, the, so the main influences were a combination of the fairground art plus the, the influence from the Asian community with their painted doorways. And uh, the other thing was uh, Marvel Comics. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, because um, I, I, I was always collected comics and enthusiast. And there were certain uh, illustrators in the comics who did some very wild things. Probably not the ones that they make in the films of now, but there were one or two that, that they haven't yet put into production. And uh, so it was the, it was those things, those those three things. And um, from then on, we we went from painting the shop fronts, and we thought about painting cars, and we thought, well, nobody's going to take the risk of us painting their cars in these wild colours and everything else. And uh, so we thought the only thing to do is we'll we'll buy our own car, paint that, and then see if it will attract other people. So we went to a second hand car sales place and found a, a huge uh, Buick, American Buick, oh, nice. which had lovely big surfaces, areas to, to paint on. And uh, so we, we started painting that in the same kind of colours and everything. And uh, obviously it was a good self-promotion as well. Everybody, mm. see, everybody noticed us driving around London in it and everything. Oh, yes, of course. So yeah. you were just driving around in it once you completed yes, it. Exactly, yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the obvious, some people would recognise it from the mm. publicity we'd had with it previously with the furniture and shop fronts and things. So we were the first to do, uh, as I say, painted furniture since the Amiga workshops, but we're also the first probably forerunners of today's graffiti in terms of painting shop fronts and walls and things. But we're also the first to do customised cars in this country. They've been doing them in America... But in America, they were they were involved more in the shape of the cars. They would kind of use fiberglass and do very strange shapes, like the Batmobile. Right. Whereas we were doing this whole surface decoration mm. and going to town with that. So but, can I ask then, when you when you were painting the cars, then mm. I mean, presumably I'm not really of an artistic background, but how were you? Were you hand painting or spray painting or what? Yeah, no. Uh, the thing is, Doug and I. Uh, we sort of uh, when you, when we went to art college in the uh, sort of uh, early sixties, um, they used to teach coach painting and heraldry as part of the curriculum. So we knew how to handle a brush and mm. how to uh, what they call cut a straight line and um, do gradation mm. without the use of a airbrush or a spray. Mm. In fact, you can do better gradation by hand if you know how to do it. Because right. because if you I mean not you can tell that much difference, but if you went with a magnifying glass to spray any work that's done with a spray, you would see the dots. Mm-hmm. Whereas if it's done by hand, you blend the paint sure. into each other and you don't mm-hmm. see any dots. It's a bit like the difference between film and digital or whatever yes. that is. It's very different to what custom, customised cars, how they're done these days by people. They What they tend to do is they use a, a, an airbrush or a mm-hmm. spray and they do tend to take off the bonnets and the doors and treat them all like flat pieces of artwork. Mm. Whereas with us, we like to pay respect to the shape of the car. 
So all the kind of uh, fairground imagery, which was things like eagles' wings, lightning bolts, stars, uh, that kind of imagery, we made it follow the contours of the car. And I'm sure it looks and, a lot better. Yeah, and it looked like it, it, it was an integral part of the yeah. car. You just got the feeling Probably. that if you, if yeah, you cut the car in half, it was a bit like cutting a stick of rock. You'd think, expect the colours to go right through to the centre, you know. I can imagine if you're doing it as separate pieces, the flow won't be there from no, one to not. the next. It was almost like separate paintings it, on the vehicle, whereas if you're doing like, it yeah. all together... Yeah. It sounds like it would be much better. Yeah. Yeah, so I can just imagine you driving around in, in this car. It must have caused quite a stir, did it? It did, yeah. And uh, and I, I'm just trying to remember how... Yeah, the first person who showed an interest was uh, a guy called Tara Brown, the Honourable Tara Brown, who was the heir to the Guinness fortune. Right. And he wanted... He, he had an AC Cobra, which was one of the fastest cars around at the time, fast accelerating car. And he wanted his painting. Uh, so we went down there and uh, negotiated with him and started painting his car. This was in, uh, we painted it in a muse near, uh, what was it, near Marble Arch, I think it was, mm. yeah. Yeah, and Tara, uh, Tara Brown was there to the Guinness Fortune. He, he introduced us to Paul McCartney because Paul was a friend of his. And Paul had seen the, the work that we were doing and said he'd like his piano doing in the same, tr- the same, the same treatment. Mm. And... Uh, so we went round to Paul's place and he showed us the piano and what he needed doing. So we we got that taken from his place to our studio to paint on it. And uh, I must say at this time, I haven't mentioned, but the third partner uh, was d- this guy called David Vaughan. I know the initials of the company were B-E-V, That's weren't it. they? And that yeah. was your, all your first so initials. So Douglas Binder, yes. uh, me for the Edwards, yes. and then Vaughan. But the thing is with Dave Vaughan, he was... Uh, he was uh, something of a, I mean, I'm not a psych, psychoanalyst, but he, I think he had psycho, definitely had psychopathic tendencies. And uh, it was the kind of thing with, it was always, we were always on tenterhooks when we were with Dave, because he never did any of the painting and the artwork. He was like our manager. But he was at college with you, at the he art was at college, college, was he? Yeah, mm. but he hadn't got the capability of doing the kind of paint work that Doug and I were doing. Uh, so he was kind of our manager and agent, as it were. And I think... To be fair, we wouldn't have gotten as far as we did without him in one mm-hmm. sense because he was very gregarious, very outgoing. And I think he, I think partly to do with his, he didn't have respect for for anyone. So I think that's why it didn't face him to go and meet, you know, famous people or whoever. Not but bothered about upsetting them at all. He just no. barged straight in, did he? And in terms of not upsetting them, he'd often get us uh, good commissions with sort of uh, well-known clients, mm-hmm. uh, what have you. But... Uh, Part of his condition, he was paranoid as well. And if, uh, if anybody, if, for instance, we'd be interviewed by some journalists from some of the tabloids, and uh, if they felt that uh, they were they weren't paying him enough attention, or he would he would take something they said quite innocently as he'd take it the wrong way, and next mm. thing he would turn violent. Mm. And this used to happen on a regular basis. So he could lose his clients just as easily as he, as he acquired mm. them. And uh, for us, it was like living with a time bomb. You never knew when he was going to go and going to blow up. You'd be tiptoeing around him a we lot of the time, were you? Time, yeah, mm. and uh, and we, uh, as I say, we well, we did the piano for Paul, and uh, he was pleased with that. And uh, and then then we had yeah, we Dave decided that he'd want to sell, try and push the car in America, mm. and he was the only one of the three of us that could drive at that time. Oh, right. So <laughs> so he. 
he shot off to America with the Cobra. This is we after we completed it for Tara, but Tara mm. was in agreement, and we, he drove off to uh, across the states, and he arrived in San Francisco at the time at the height of the Haight Ashbury, the San Francisco drug scene and whatever right. else. And he came back and said, we've got to do these light shows. It's, it's a big thing over there. And we hadn't a clue how to do a light show. But he'd arranged for this guy who did all the major light shows in San Francisco at the Fillmore and the Avalon Ballroom. He arranged for him to come over and we would pay for his flight and everything to help us put on a, a light show. So we put on this huge light show at the Roundhouse. And uh, we weren't the very first who light shows in London. There was another guy called Mark Boyle who was uh, doing the the UFO club for the Pink Floyd. Mm. But his were only on a small scale. And we were first to do a large-scale thing at the Roundhouse. And uh, we needed performers, so we went to see this guy, uh, Harold, at the Harold Davidson Agency, who had handled all the big stars at the time. And this guy called Tito Burns, who was the impresario, and we said we wanted some named acts or whatever for the, for the light show. And he said, well, you can have such and such a person, uh, he said, if you'll take this young lad for £50. And we thought, well, he can't be much good for £50. Uh, you were paying him £50 to do it? Oh, yeah, well, he was, yes. he was supplying the artists, and that's what, oh, it, okay. that's what it, right, it would sure. cost us to, mm. for the artist to perform. Anyway, we thought, well, you can't be much good for £50. We thought, well, go on then, we'll take him, throw give, him in. Give the lad a try. Yeah. Anyway, he turned up to the gig, and it was Jimi Hendrix. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so he wasn't that known at the time, and but it, well, not outside of London. Mm. But there were about 3,000 fans who turned up to watch him at the at the Roundhouse. So we thought that was amazing, because we thought the impresario doesn't know what he's got on his hands, you know, otherwise no. he'd been asking more money for it. Yes, you know? sure. But uh, that was for the second show at the Roundhouse. Mm. Uh, but the, fir- the very first show we did, was uh, the very first all-electronic gig, if you like, mm. or rave. And uh, we got the Radiophonic Workshop from the BBC, and uh, we asked McCartney if he would do, because we knew he'd been experimenting with abstract sounds, and uh, he was well into uh, Carl Allen's Stockhausen at the time. And uh, so he said, yeah, we'll put a, t- put a tape together. So he and the Beatles put a 15-minute tape together, which is the longest sequence of anything they'd ever done but I must say that the others weren't really in on it they didn't think it was much cop you know they didn't no well it was all very abstract and it was like weird to them yes you know very contemporary you know and uh, but I think Paul liked it and we so that was the first night we we played all this electronic music and the light shows, we'd, we'd uh, coated the whole of the inside of the, the, the roundhouse with like a, an old railway shed, mm. which would use initially for turn, for trains to turn around, right. rotate and turn around to go in a different direction. But it had a huge dome on it. And uh, we, uh, we coated the whole of the, the, the inside of the dome with plastic sheeting mm. to project on from different angles. So the, the whole of the interior was moving imagery. Plus, they sell all this electronic sound. But what we didn't realise at the time was the the tape that Paul gave us, the abstract sound on it, also had there was Paul playing the piano, and it was the fir- his first experiments with the song "Fixing a Hole Where the Ru- Where the Rain Gets In," which right. was on the Sergeant Pepper album. Okay. So that night, the, the whole audience had the first preview, if you like, of mm. the of Sergeant Pepper. When Paul found out about this, he was livid, but. 
we didn't know it was on the tape. No. You know, it, it was his mistake, mm. in a sense. And this time, uh, as I say, uh, with Dave Vaughan, I mean, we finished up. We were doing a an in, uh, a shop front in the King's Road, uh, and this was a shop owned by Tara Brown, and it was called Dandy Fashions. And we chose to work inside the shop at night time because it was that's when it was most quiet and you mm. didn't have anybody bothering you. We worked on boards, panels that would then eventually be attached to the outside of the shop, and we were there painting away. And Doug and that's Doug and I with the uh, and there's a lot of fine artwork to be done, so we're tickling away with the fine brushes, middle of the night, it was all very contemplative, we're just in, enjoying doing it. But Dave was kind of like, because he hadn't anything, nothing to do, mm. he was pacing up and down like a caged <laughs> tiger. tiger. Yes. And um, uh, we we that was we started to worry at stages like that because I think uh, what is what he would do then is pick up a brush. And, and would, start messing with and it. And start messing with oh, it, no. you know. I mean, try his best, but he would make a mess of it. Mm. We would have to go over it. So uh, we'd, to think of a distraction, so uh, we said, uh, why don't you go down to the Sloan Square, Dave, in, in the car and uh, pick up some uh, tea, pie and peas, pie, mm. yeah, pies and meat pies and t- cups of tea. Mm. He had this billy can. So I said, oh, that's great. So he shot off to mm. this, uh, this stall. And uh, meanwhile, Doug and I are painting away there. Next thing we knew, Dave comes charging into the uh, back into the into the shop. Mm. He said, "Douse the lights, cut out the lights, grab a hammer." I thought, well, you know, and Doug and I in, in the middle of all this, you, you know, it's very quiet and you were just having quite a peaceful time. Shaking, yeah, you know, what's going on? What's going on? Well, what had transpired was Dave had gone out to the pie stall, and as was his wont, he got into an argument with somebody in the queue. And next thing is, is Dave's got his the pies and he's shoved them into this guy's face. Oh no! The guy then ran to his car and they were, he could, Dave could see there were three or four other blokes in the car. So Dave dashed into into our car and instead of trying to lose them with this brightly coloured car, he drove <laughs> all the way back to where we were, and then and said, brought them back to you. Yeah, brought them back to us. So next thing we knew, he's saying grab a hammer and you know mm. any weapon or whatever. Then we saw this guy, these guys come all come to a screeching halt outside the shop. One of them comes running to, into the doorway, and I could see he's got bits of food all oh, over no. his face. And then just as he gets into the narrow doorway, Dave let him have the full billy can of hot tea. So he not only had our pies, he had our tea as well. This guy, but he screamed and then shot off back to the car. They drove off round the block and then they came back and threw stones at the shop. And by a miracle, I don't know, but these stones hit the thin pieces of the woodwork and not the actual glass. Mm. But by this time, Doug and I were now livid because we thought we'd, we'd had all this aggression for nothing, not knowing, you, yeah, no. for nothing and not knowing nothing. why. So we said, let's chase them. So we got in the car, drove off down the King's Road. And as we were going down the King's Road, we were going through these traffic lights, which were on green. But his car came in from the side. It must must have been the lights must have been on red for him, and smashed into the side of our painted car. Oh no! By this time, we were really angry. But we you got, were you were unharmed. Yeah, we jumped out of the car. It obviously it spoiled the car and everything. We jumped out, and then we saw it was this little old guy. who was like a like a I don't know if you remember. There was a Mister Magoo from the car early mm, cartoons. Yes, but it's sweet little old American guy. And he was he was almost in tears. He's so apologetic, you know. I'm sorry I didn't mean to do this. What a beautiful car, and I've damaged it and all this. So we had to kind of 
you know, uh, step back as it, and, and sort of say, oh, it's all right, it's all we've spent calm then, trying to calm him down then. Mm. But that was just like a, di- a typical day in the Typical day, day in the office. Yeah, with Dave Vaughan, so that's what mm. to expect a lot of the time. And uh, so uh, Doug and I wanted to get away, mm. you know, f- from him. And the way the way it worked out was that uh, the, the drug thing was coming. I mean, we'd been we'd been sort of taking marijuana and hashish and things, but then the LSD came. In fact, the guy from came from San Francisco brought some with him. That was, I mean, I've never touched drugs since, but uh, and I would advise people against it. But at, at that time, we were imbibing, and uh, mm. uh, I learned some things from it. But uh, but Dave couldn't handle it. And that's when he, when he was kind of losing it, Doug and I tiptoed out the back door, you know. We, well, I guess they you know, they say that it actually exaggerates your personality traits, doesn't yeah, I think it? it probably, yeah. I and mean, if he yeah. was a little unstable to start with, it probably yeah. tipped him right over. I mean, we had um, with the we got the shop front. To, the last job we had was the shop front of um, uh, Lord John's in Carnaby Street, and uh, Lord John is, is he didn't want to pay. Uh, the amount that we're asking, so he said, "Well, you could have the upstairs uh, above the shop as a studio, no rent, free of rent." So we took him up on that, and uh, at that at that time there was a, a film that came out called *The Knack* with Rita Dushingham, and the whole thing about the film was it was all filmed in what in a white room, everything was white, and from then on it became very trendy for people to paint the, the interiors of their houses with white emulsion. And especially studios and the like, and we, and we never like to follow the trends. So I said, well, why don't we paint our map black, <laughs> which we did, and then we realised why people don't paint the places map black. I mean, it was just so depressing being in there. So we spent all the time in the park. So work wasn't getting done anyway, no. you know. When we split up, mm. Doug, Dave, and myself, be very disbanded, and you had nowhere to live. Yeah, and uh, I was at a friend's place and. I got a phone call from, from McCartney, from Paul, and he must have sort of found research and found out where I was. And he asked what I was doing. I said, nothing, I'm not, you know, no fix the boards, really. Just stayed on friends, you know, places. And he said, uh, well, I want a mural doing, do you, you, you want to come and paint it for me? So I jumped at the chance. And uh, he asked me to sort of live there while I was doing it. So uh, this was, because Jane actually was, who was then girlfriend was mm. the, she was working on some theatrical production in America, um, so this was for about three months, something like that. And uh, so I set about the the mural and uh, in his dining room. Uh, but it turned out that Paul, uh, I don't know if he wanted the mural doing or not, but every time he was around, he said he'd say like, "I'm going out to shops, you know, I'm going to shop some clothes, whatever you come in." And then he'd say, yeah, we're going to a nightclub, I'm going to a nightclub, where are you coming? <laughs> going to the recording studio, you come. So like, you're uh, a bit of a companion then, were you? Yeah, that's sort of like we went all over the place together. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a good time. And he was very generous, Paul. I mean, I, you know, at the time I said, well, because I was going to be staying there for three months. I said, well, I've only got the clothes I'm standing in, you know. Mm. So it's, he opened up his wardrobe and said, help, help yourself. So here we leave Dudley having moved in with Paul to paint his mural. The second part will be next week, so subscribe to the podcast to listen to where it took him next. Susan here, signing out from Inside Yorkshire.